Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Michael McClymond. Uh, Dr. McClymond published with Baker Press a book called The Devil's Redemption, A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism. It's a two-volume work, um, and it is a tour de force for sure. Uh, it won the Book of the Year Award in Academic Theology from the Gospel Coalition. Um, and I, it has been some time since I had wanted to interview Dr. McClymond, and we were only able to sit down recently. Um, so uh, I was very grateful to have him spend an hour. We talked through some of the themes from the book and then some other kind of interpretive questions that came uh, from my reading of the book. So I think that you will enjoy this conversation. There's uh, a lot to be learned from Dr. McClymond, and appreciate uh, Baker uh, Academic for sending me uh, these volumes. Uh, we do have uh, some conversations coming up. I have interviewed uh, Mike Hobbits again about the nature of heaven. Uh, I've interviewed uh, uh, Stanley Hauerwas. I'm very excited about that. And actually, uh, Grant Bellchamber, one of my students from St. Louis University, uh, is also going to be coming on. And we hope to have a uh, website up for the podcast um, before a couple before too long. Um, so uh, lots of uh, exciting things here happening at a history of Christian theology. So uh, if you like this conversation or if you like the podcast, please do rate us and review us on iTunes. Um, and if uh, we also have a Twitter at uh, Theology XIAN, we have a Facebook page and uh, we will also uh, have a website soon, a history of Christian theology.com. Um, so you can also find us there. So thank you so much for listening and enjoy this conversation with Dr. McClymond. Uh, very good. Well, I'm quite excited. Uh, this is a podcast long in coming, uh, and uh, I was able to uh, – uh, Baker uh, Press provided me with a couple copies of uh, Dr. Michael McClymond. Uh, I don't actually remember your professorial title. Are you professor of theology? I can't remember what your – Professor of Modern Christianity. Modern Christianity at St. Louis University. And Dr. McClymond wrote The Devil's Redemption, A New History of Christian Universalism. It is two volumes. It is indeed a tour de force. Also received a Book of the Year Award, um, a couple different uh, awards, I think, uh, from this one's from the Gospel Coalition. Uh, but several awards, um, a very thorough study from uh, sort of the origins of Christianity up through the contemporary moment. Um, Dr. McClyman covers a lot of ground. Um, and so, I, you know, we won't be, be able to talk about all of it, obviously. Um, but, uh, but hopefully this will be a, a good conversation to kind of draw out some threads um, and we'll get people to be interested in having their own look uh, at this very comprehensive work. So, uh, Dr. McClyman, thanks for coming on. That's good to be with you. Um, well, I, we could almost just start with the title because I, I feel like, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens on Amazon or something like that, where people see The Devil's Redemption, a new history uh, and interpretation of Christian universalism, and they might think that you're arguing for uh, The Devil's Redemption. Uh, so why is the book? Well, and you probably didn't even choose the title, did you? I mean, did Baker give you that title? No, I chose the title. Okay. Um, I, I always felt that a good title should raise a question in the mind of the of person who encounters it. Mm -hmm. So I had a book on the life of Jesus that was called uh, Familiar Stranger. Mm. It's a kind of an oxymoron. Oh, well, in what sense is he is he a stranger? I thought we all knew him. Well, he's familiar, but he is also a stranger. So, 
So I picked The Devil's Redemption, and it is a um, it is an ironic title because uh, it, it's not an affirmation. Of course, I almost could put a question mark next to that. Is the devil redeemed? If one believes that God has created the world in such a way that every thing that is turned, all evil is ultimately turned to good, then in principle, one has to include even Satan. Even Lucifer has to somehow turn back. Um, like the prodigal son, mm. welcome back into the house of the father with Christ, the elder brother standing at the door, as it were. And so the, the title is deliberately intended to, to raise that question. Um, and also, it does raise the yeah, it raises the issue too of, of not only human realm but also spiritual powers and their sal- salvation or salvability. Mm. Yeah, and then, so that's that is ultimately the question. So to yeah, to what extent is universalism a um, a position that a Christian can or should hold. Um, and I think I've heard you tell the origin story of the book, but it's a pretty fascinating story where you found a uh, a kind of handbook of, um, was it mysticism that ended up drawing together a lot of these threads when you were at a, at a library in Yale? Is that the kind of the, the genesis of the book? Well, going back a little bit before that, I there, you know, this the, the popular book, Love Wins, Mm. by Rob Bell came out in 2011. And that did, I was provoked by that because I saw how widely, uh, what a wide impact that particular book was having. I remember going to the, the St. Louis Bread, Panera Bread Company and seeing this group of circle of Christian women. There were like a dozen of them and they all had their copies of Rob Bell open. And then there was a cover story of Newsweek during Easter week, you know, what if there is no hell? And and I began checking with a number of theological friends, and I found that there wasn't anyone who was really intending to write any kind of response. Of course, at that time, I had no concept of how complex the whole debate of universalists and anti-universalists was through the you know eight, some eighteen hundred years. But when I when I got leave time, a sabbatical, and I was a visiting fellow at Yale University, I was yes in the bowels of Yale Divinity School Library. And I had in my pocket a handwritten list of Christian universalists, some of them not well-known. Jane Led in the 1690s formed the first actual organized group of universalists. So this wasn't a, mm. a private opinion of an individual, but an organized universalist group and sort of a predecessor of the later universalist church in the mm. U.S., which was prominent in the 19th century. Um, so her name was there, Valentin Tomberg. A number of people were not that well known. Um, I think Schelling was there because of some of his writings as an idealistic philosopher, seemed pointing toward a sort of universal convergence of all reality under under God in the end. And I was wondering what connected these thinkers to one another. And then I pulled off the shelf the Dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism, mm-hmm. Wouter Hanegraaff, uh, mm-hmm. same spelling but no relation probably to Hank Hanegraaff. For those who know of his writing, the Bible Answer Man. Uh, but Hanegraaff was a professor at the University of Amsterdam, and he'd collaborated with someone from the University of Paris. And there were these chairs of esoteric studies. Not, they're not theologians. They didn't have a dog in the fight, so to speak, in terms of any theological debate over universalism. But to my amazement, there was an article in that reference work on every one of the people on, who are on my list of Christian universalists. And I thought, hmm, there's... Here, these people are working outside of the sphere of theological studies, who seem to see a uh, uh, an affinity between mm-hmm. these the thinkers, and so that got me started in thinking about the, the the larger argument of the two volumes. 
Interesting. And, and that sort of, um, that serves as the backdrop of uh, a lot of the first volume where you're just kind of beginning with uh, the Gnostics. And so you sort of talk about uh, the role that Gnosticism played in a, a kind of universalism. And then you trace that, uh, like I say, all the way up to the present moment. Um, so, so why is it important for the argument of your book to show connections uh, between the the sort of the early Gnostics and then these later esotericists? Why is that kind of that thread that runs through these sort of two thousand years? And actually, you know, part of the kind of um, uh, what should we say? Uh, the the interest of the book is that you actually tie into Kabbalism, uh, you tie in in some cases to forms of Sufism. Um, so this is not even something that could be reduced to uh, simply like a, a Christian question. Um, this is much broader than that. So why why is it important for your argument to show that all of these things have sort of uh, connections? Well, I, I think you know I think genealogy just is, is important to understanding, and I and I realize some of the universalists who don't like the argument I presented, or especially my conclusions, you know, argues this is genetic fallacy. Um, well, I would just point out that universalists have their own genealogy, mm. and, and typical genealogy, the, the universalist genealogy that to which mine is, I guess, a counter genealogy is that you know the early Christian Church was universalist, and then along came Augustine. <laughs> and Augustine, Latin Christianity, this heavy legalistic view that sort of that sort of descended like night upon you know Western Christendom. While in the East there was this light of universalism that continued <laughs> to shine through the centuries. And so one of the reasons I approached in this way is, is I had to really take a large, a broad brush approach and a, a wide sort of wide angle, uh, you know, response to the 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 universalist genealogy that has been gaining ground. And the, and the longer I looked at it, I mean, I was astounded at the number of, you know, of explicit anti-universalists, not just among Latin fathers, but Greek, Syriac, Coptic, um, in, in, the, in the, you know, the, the Christian East. Um, so do you, if you want to understand, you know, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, if you, I mean, you would study, you might study something like the framing of the Constitution, the framers of the Constitution, the history of the interpretation of that in the Supreme Court. I think theology is similar. Of course, I'm speaking to a historical theologian as you are, uh, doctor, and, and I am too. And so we, we believe as historical theologians that the history of an idea is, is, is quite pertinent to understanding it in, in the present context. And then as I, as I delved into the history, I discovered things that I didn't expect to be investigating, like like Kabbalah, Jewish Kabbalah, which has a universalist uh, tendency, as Gershom Sholem, the great authority, pointed out, also Islamic esotericism. That element of my argument, the sort of interreligious that shows the esoteric dimension of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all sort of moving toward universalism, I think that's, that's a sort of, um, it's not the, the core of my argument, but it certainly is a corroborating factor. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it it is uh it's hard not to go on a tangent here. Um but I guess uh one of the things that your work uh has sparked a lot of controversy, I guess, is the reception that is received. Um but one of the things that you mentioned there and and I'm a Augustine scholar so I can't help but respond to it is yeah, is this like 
you know, is that charge that somehow everything goes wrong at Augustine. So people do love uh, to talk about the connection among ideas. And I think that that's right, um, that, that we should see these connections. But yeah, it is it is one of those things. I, so I've become recently I started a uh, long story, but I recently started reading a lot of T.F. Torrance and his sort of the Latin heresy, as he called it. Right. And basically, you know, he just he wants to say everything goes back to Augustine. There's another lover of Eastern Orthodox theology, David Bentley Hart, who does a similar thing. And anyone who sort of is on his side of the position always goes back to Augustine. Like Augustine is the one where, yeah, like you say, everything goes awry. I mean, and even in popular treatments, you'll see every now and then someone will send me a New York Times article where someone's like, all our problems in sex, they go back to Augustine. All mm -hmm. of our problems with this, they go back to Augustine. And Imper I, like it. Imperial compelle intrahera. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it is a it is such a weird uh it, it is a weird thing about doing studying Augustine is this like, you know, he is the one that everybody wants to uh beat up on. And if you can it sort of seems like if you can take him down, uh then maybe you're you're getting somewhere, I guess. Um right. well uh so I guess as we're thinking about universalism and, you, and so really we're talking about universal salvation. So for, for the, for, in when you're trying to draw out this genetic fallacy, like what is it that, uh, how, can we say any more definitively about what the specific position is, uh, that people who are universalist hold? Cause like to some extent it does seem like they're, you know, we could talk like before we were actually recording, we were talking about Bart, um, who has a different way of talking about, um, and, and actually never really quite wants to say that everybody will be saved, although he's hopeful, you know, he's, sometimes it's referred to as hopeful universalism. Um, and is, you know, is that to be distinguished from even something like C.S. Lewis uh, in The Great Divorce, where, you know, there's a kind of like a continual chance and a continual return to oneself um, is sort of the implication of the allegory, you know, based on the famous line, uh, I, the devil would rather uh, uh, reign in hell than serve in heaven. And it sort of seems like there's like a kind of, or, or some people would say an inclusivism as well in some of his other works. But yeah, so are we, like, how do we know when we've uh, moved into like this category of universalist rather than kind of, um, I don't know, more fanciful interpretations of, of a way to think about the separation between heaven and hell. Okay. Well, um, I mean, the universe is simply as someone who says, who, uh, who affirms that all will finally be saved. So it's, it's an affirmation about an ultimate outcome, hmm. not the particular process. And of course, one major distinction to a couple of distinctions at the outset, and I'll add a third one in based on your comment, but first distinction between uh, interreligious universalism Christian. Mm. So interreligious would be like the many paths up the mountaintop that all lead to the same summit, mm. the Jesus path, the Buddha path, the Muhammad trail, as it were. Yeah. I'm so not John really. Hick. What's that? Yeah. John, sort of John Hick. Yeah. yeah. Hick would be a prominent representative of that, of that perspective. That's not my primary focus. I'm primarily focused on Christian universalism, which would affirm that all are finally saved and all are saved through Christ. But there, you know, there's a there's a major cleavage, and and I think a lot of people who affirm universal salvation, Christian universalism, have not maybe fully reflected on this question of does everyone go immediately into the blissful mm -hmm. presence of God, or is there some intermediate state, something like the Catholic purgatory, not exactly like purgatory, is but which is 
and Catholic teaching is only for those who've been baptized, right, in the, in the name of the Trinity, but uh, something like a purgatorial process. And if you say that everyone goes immediately to be with God, then, you know, even to go back to the 19th century literature on this, where people use the example of the murder-suicide, the man who murders his wife and children and then shoots himself. Sounds very contemporary, but hey, that was happening in the 19th century. Someone used the example of the bank robber who wants to rob a million dollars and he his 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 internal wager is that kind of a pascaline wager well if i succeed then i'll be a millionaire and if i fail then i'll be in heaven so i can't really <laughs> fail so even if i'm killed in the process of you know shot down by the placeman caught trying to do the bank so the rank and file universalists the ordinary people in the in the pew they thought they said there has to be some moral nexus is a phrase that they use between our actions now and the actions beyond. If everyone, Hitler, Mother Teresa, whoever you want to put, fill in the blank, is just immediately in God's presence the moment they die, they thought, how could that not be morally corrosive in terms of any incentive to live, uh, to live a righteous life and to obey God? So that's where this purgatorial intermediate state of however long duration might come in. The response to that from the so-called ultra-universalist was that this is a denial of God's grace. If Jesus' death is the full and sufficient payment of the penalty for sin, satisfaction of God's justice, then that then it's all taken care of. There is no more condemnation. Condemnation ended when Jesus died on the cross. And so the ultra-universalist, Moltmann, I think, really is an ultra-universalist because he wants to insist that all condemnation was swallowed up on the cross. Now, Karl Barth seemed to say something contradictory because he said explicitly, and Br Emil Brunner, one of his, his, his former friend that he had a falling out with in the, in the 20s and in the 30s, about Brunner was a sharp critic initially of Barth's universal election doctrine. When Barth said that Jesus Christ is the only condemned man, he seemed to be saying that all condemnation ended at the cross. And then the question is, what is the nature of the Christian proclamation? Is it in any sense a call to decision, human decision of faith and repentance, or is it an announcement of what God has already accomplished on behalf of all human beings without exception? And Bart kind of wanted to have it both ways. All condemnation was taken care of at the cross, yet he, there is what he calls the open situation of proclamation in which decisions are happening and have eternal consequences. And that seems kind of, that seems, you know, Oliver Crisp, a well-known philosopher of religion, argued that Bart is ultimately kind of an incoherent position. So some who tried to play with the notion of time and eternity to try to say no and mm -hmm. be taken care of, but somehow there's still a, a decision. Yet it's not just God's decision, but, uh, but there, we have a decision as well. So that's, you know, that's a challenge. Um, you seem to be raising a question about high, a kind of actualized versus a hypothetical universalism. I think that that goes back even to the time of origin because there was a, a time there was a, a, a reported we don't have the full transcript of the debate but he, but origin um, debated a acknowledged Gnostic named Candidus in which he said that even Satan like mm. could be saved or something like that and that created an uproar and and he, origin's response he says only an, an, a crazy person would say that that Satan will be saved as Satan but I think what Origen mm -hmm. probably meant my my suggestion. He probably meant that or that Lucifer would be excuse me that Satan would be saved as Lucifer as the original unfallen angel because he would mm -hmm. be restored to that original condition. So, but that's a hypothetical. That's uh, in my view that 
origin, probably from both the hypothetical and the actual, in the sequence of eons, world eons, that finally even Lucifer, in fact, would be saved. Yeah. Well, and yeah, so I, I guess I, I probably put too much in there, but I was trying to, you know, sort of part of what I was trying to ask and sort of think through is, is yeah, how different thinkers kind of parse this and your, your response raised a lot of interesting questions. Uh, but one of them is like, yeah, it does seem like in, in sort of origins outlook and especially as you just, uh, uh elucidated it there, uh, there's a whole different notion of what justice is for. Um, and that is to say, you know, you like the sort of the quick descriptors might be restorative justice versus retributive justice. Mm -hmm. Um, and you talked about all condemnation on being consumed in Christ, but it does, uh, raise the question like, yeah, is, is justice simply, uh, you know, God's like, I guess it's sort of like, we don't need any more explanation that than God judges sin and condemns sin. And so in that sense, there's no, like it is retributive. It is paying uh, what is uh, due, um, but there's nothing else that needs to kind of be explained. Whereas restorative justice, it seems to me, rests more on the notion that justice is in service of of restoration, is in service of something mm -hmm. better, uh, mm -hmm. which is sort of a return to God or a return to wholeness. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that justice kind of has a has that sort of purpose. Um, and so I don't know, like in your, like, and this is more of a, your own theological position, which towards the end of the book, you really kind of bring your position. So do you think that, uh, you can hold a restorative kind of justice position and still be an infernalist or does the rest, uh, or a particularist or whatever the phrase is that we're supposed to use on this? Uh, you know, I, I hear people calling it different thing, but if you believe in hell, um, do you, can you have a kind of restorative purpose of justice uh, or does it have to just be this kind of retributive justice? Well, I would, I would say that um, if your position is that all divine, um, you know, d judgments have this, have the sole purpose of restoration, I think it's very difficult to believe in, in anything other than a temporary hell. It's, it would be very hard to just reconcile that with an eternal hell. The way I would think in terms of restorative justice, and maybe this seems like I'm shifting into a different register, but but in terms of what the Thomists call the antecedent and consequent wills of God. Mm. Scripture says God desires all men to be saved mm. and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And, and that's in, in 1 Timothy. And in 2 Peter, it says that he God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Calvinist interpretation of that, those verses, the common Calvinist interpretation, I, I don't really find very satisfying that all means some select mm -hmm. group within humanity. And that particular text, I think I, I'm a, perhaps a little bit more Thomistic than Calvinistic in the way I would read that. I think there is a universal intention. Mm. At the same time, there is particularistic election. Now, that's, that's, that's paradoxical. Matt Levering has done a book on, is a Thomist, Catholic Thomist on this, and said that basically... These are two different affirmations in Scripture, the, the universal scope and intention. And that, in, in a sense, is like restorative justice. Yes, God, God's intention is the reparation of the cosmos. Tikkun olam, to use the Jewish term. You know. <laughs> um, but sin, I, I think it's easy to underestimate the extent to which sin is like a rip in the fabric of mm. metaphysically of the universe. It's a, it's a profoundly disruptive thing. And uh, to get, I mean, the emotion to communicate something of like maybe the on an emotive level, it's like the 
the loving husband with his wife who is fully convinced that everything is wonderful and the marriage would come back from a wonderful vacation. And then he, she goes out and he finds, opens a drawer that he hadn't looked in and he sees clear, oh no, undeniable, irrefragable documentary evidence that she's been conducting an affair with his, his own best friend, right? And so what is, he doesn't stop loving his wife at that moment, but it's a conflicted love mm-hmm. because he, there's on the one hand the, his love and his loyalty for her, but then the sense of repulsion because of the, the nature of the, the infidelity and the deception. And then he sees the dates on the documents. He sees how long this has been going on. And I think something that comes through in the representation of Yahweh in the Old Testament, like in the book of mm-hmm. Hosea, mm-hmm. where he, he says that you know that he's debating whether he will give Israel up and he said I will not give you up for I am the holy one in your midst. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because in that context the holiness is not destructive judgment it's God's forbearing from judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he is the holy one therefore Israel's not destroyed. But those the, the the tension between God's loyalty he is he is perfectly loyal to to that which he's created not mm-hmm. to annihilate, not to destroy his purposes for good. But God is also completely consistent with his own moral character, his holy hatred of sin that, mm-hmm. he, that is utterly opposed to him. And I, I think really any, any adequate theological approach to the universalism has to put the cross at the very center because the cross is where the love and the justice of God intersect. Mm-hmm. In a prof- holy love and, and, ho- and God's holy, holy justice come together. I brought together a group of, uh, there are about 50 local pastors, and they we were talking about universalism as a pastoral issue, like what mm-hmm. to say to congregants and when this came up. And I had them work on it in small groups, and what they came back to me is, is they ended up with the same conclusion that I did as, as working pastors uh, serving congregations in our area, that that preaching the cross in its full depth and reality and all the different dimensions of this was maybe the best way to address universalism in a mm-hmm. less abstract way, not not so much like, well, should God have created the world the way that he, you know, did create the kind of possible worlds argument. This is a little more grounded. Let's think about the world that we live in and and the fact that redemption came in this very costly way through Jesus, you know, Son of God shedding his own blood. And I think that that kind of puts you know, puts into perspective both the God's opposition to sin and but his his gracious will. Yeah. Yeah, well and and I think I think that's helpful, right? And so you, we've been talking about what happens at the cross and you sort of had that notion of ultra universalist versus the uh universalist in the pews. And what's interesting is I think there's impulses that are correct in both of those. I don't know how you'd respond to this, but you know, it's like I I sort of understand why people want to say, well there needs to be some kind of punishment that still happens. Uh, hmm. it, or, or let's not call it punishment, but let's call it restoration. Like, so if the, if sin is a corrupting force in humans, uh, such that our will is so perverted, we don't love the right things. We need to have that will restored, um, so that it loves properly what it should love. Um, mm-hmm. but it seems like that can't happen in a moment or can't happen in an instant. Um, where right. like, you know, and what's that? Yeah, no, that's Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I mean, you could say, well, Maybe the heart of Adolf Hitler or Joseph Goebbels or whoever you want to take Pol Pot or, uh-huh. you know, whatever person responsible for the deaths of many people. What if it's just changed in an instant becomes, yeah. becomes you know, uh, becomes completely sanctified or well, th- then 
there's a philosopher who made the argument of, in regard to the universalist position that that um, it seems to the position seems to negate our moral choices. Now he uses the absurd example of the McDonald's drive-through, and he said, you know, you order a, a shake and you drive through, you get a fish sandwich. You order a Big Mac, you get a fish sandwich. You order a, a Coca Cola, you get a fish sandwich. It's kind of like you know, <laughs> it doesn't doesn't matter what you've chosen. God's giving you a fish sandwich. Yeah, well, and and that I mean that's ultimately why. You know, at least personally, I find, you know, when I think about hell, it's why the, you know, the only way that makes the most sense to me is C.S. Lewis's position, which is like where essentially C.S. Lewis says God gives you what you want. Um, and right. so, you know, and they're like, so if I'm going to think of, you know, think in those terms, like that's, you know, that that's the one that at least can satisfy my intuitions um, that, 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 you know, that God gives us exactly what we want and we'd rather you know, again, going back to that rain in heaven or rain in hell versus serve in heaven. Um, you know, at least I understand that as a kind of explanation. Well, if, uh, I, but, if I wanted to press back a little bit, Lewis, I think Lewis works apologetically. There are aspects of the gospel narratives, like the, the, the foolish virgins who are knocking and trying in Matthew, in Matthew 25, trying to get into the feast and are turned away. Mm. That suggests... That seems to be a little bit in tension with the idea of getting what mm. they want. Are they really getting what they want? Mm -hmm. Kind of, we just want to be left alone. That's not kind of what that parable. Satan is also said to be, he doesn't walk willingly into his throne, you know, into the lake mm. of fire. Balo is the mm. Greek word. Again, I, I don't want to, uh, to infer that uh, or imply that that we can completely figure this out, but um there's there are questions about about that construal of it, like it being being a you know voluntary uh, voluntary state. Yeah, well, and and then but then you know so to go back on the other side of this, like uh, the the sort of ultra universalist saying that God can do it in an instant. Some ways of speaking about sort of. Um, sort of alien grace, uh, uh, yeah, alien grace or alien, or sorry, alien righteousness, um, you know, in the sort of, uh, reformed way, you know, I mean, Augustine was, you know, different. And at least as I understand Augustine, very different here, right. He, he thinks that we can all ultimately work to merit salvation when we cooperate with the Holy spirit. Right. So this is sort of the, the Thomistic interpretation of Augustine on this, um, as I understand it. But, but there's but a God, sense God crowns his gifts rather than yeah. our merits, and and there's a sense in which it's, yeah, it's it's God's work in us that God is acknowledging rather than a independently generated, more Pelagian type of human achievement. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, but then the sort of Lutheran, uh, like as in what Luther would have said, seems to be that no, God just looks at us as just. But it doesn't. It's hard for like I, the one thing, and I had Philip Carey on here talking about the meaning of Protestant theology, and mm. he gave an interesting uh, answer to this. But when I, you know, so but so you, I suggest listeners uh, re both read his book or hear listen to that podcast. But but I sort of was having trouble with you know it does seem like we want to say there is some kind of sanctification or there is some kind of like uh, restoration. Um, but, but sometimes the way that, that sort of the, the theology of uh, uh, justification, it makes it look like, you know, we are just in the moment and that there isn't this kind of further work towards restoration. 
um yeah so anyway so like i sort of i sort of get why uh uh you, you know that, that that's one thing that i'm always trying to like sort of puzzle through how do those things hold together because i like the thomistic and even augustinian work of habituating um in virtue um but but it doesn't seem like uh sometimes the way of understanding alien righteousness actually fits with that as well yeah well i think that the reformed have a, a more of a process rather than state uh, status view of, of salvation reformed. Most reformed thinkers are a little closer to Catholics in that respect. One of the related issues that may be worth mentioning here is the notion of purgatory. I have a, I have a critique of the purgatorial notion generally. And, and of course, purgatory, there's purgatory A and I call it purgatory two. Purgatory B, which has emerged recently in Catholic thinking is quite extraordinarily different. I mean, in mm. Like in Space Salvi of Pope of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, he says that purgatory does not necessarily have duration. It may just like just be a flash, and mm. and one would be transformed. Um, one would not have to endure, you know, ongoing pain and suffering. Um, and it, it, it's almost it's, it makes me think of the New Testament verse that. Uh, that you know we shall we shall not all die but we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye it's almost like a twinkling of an eye transformation there's very little to separate it from really from protestant theology because in thomas aquinas purgatory is almost like a lesser hell the, it's it's mm. characterized it's, it's temporary in duration but it involves suffering and involves a painful process of making satisfaction for mm. sins and the issue that i that i have with this is that i think the contemporary reappropriation of purgatory wants to talk about as a time of a, 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 a situation, circumstance, however you understand the place, the space, the situation of moral development. So the moral yeah. development that you don't have in this life would be achieved in purgatory. And I don't see how the traditional purgatory of just being immersed into pain, the painful fire, I don't know how that improves someone morally because moral development suggests that there's some field of action and I choose mm. And then I experience the consequences of my choice. This is how a child sure. burns. Like the burned child fears the fire. You know, they they disobey the parent. They reach out. They touch the hot stove. Ouch! They're not going to do that again. And I think that kind of process. So what I argue with regard to purgatory is that you would almost need to replicate the present life with its mm. field of action and and making of moral choices and then experience consequences in order for it to be continued moral development, which means I, I'm not arguing in favor of re, of transmigration or reincarnation, but in some ways that actually makes more sense because it's like you yeah. don't learn in the first lifetime, you get a second lifetime and however many lifetimes are necessary. And in fact, that's one of the versions of universalism that goes back to ancient times, the Carpocratians. The first datable reference to universalist belief is in Irenaeus, and he's and it's because he speaks of all the Carpocrates believe all souls will be saved, and it's in terms of repeated incarnation. That that comes up again with the Cathars in the Middle Ages. The, the Cathar regarded as a heresy, of course, by the Catholic Church, and then in Kabbalistic thought, the idea of multiple lives. So, but I, I I have difficulty comprehending how purgatory is really an answer to the issue of of the, let's say moral turpitude in the life of the individual at the moment of their death yeah um well uh one one question i like to ask guests and i actually haven't asked it in the last couple of interviews but it just made me think you spent uh 
you know, several years at least, and a lot of work on this book. So one question I just like to ask, and I, it doesn't, this actually doesn't have to be about the book, but I say, what is one idea or truth that you once believed was true, but now believe is false or vice versa? And so a lot of guests that I have on the podcast will relate it to the book that they were writing, like something that they were surprised to find and it changed their whole perspective on something within the work. But then I've also had other people's talk about like, choosing a different college or other things that are totally unrelated. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll open that up to you. What's one thing you've changed your mind on that you thought was true, but now think is false or vice versa with the book or in life? Hmm. Wow. That's a great question. Um, let's see. I think I was, I, I clearly was, uh, when I began to do the research, I was unaware of what Cyril O'Regan of Notre Dame calls the third yeah. tradition. He refers to conservative or traditional Christian theology. And here he's going across the centuries. So that would include early church and Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, and then the, a liberal or revisionist tradition. And this third tradition, which is a esoteric uh, mm. kind of Christianity, which isn't esoteric readings of scripture. They're not, they don't really fit into the category of what could be considered liberal or conservative. Um, mm. And that's, it's not really taught in the seminary. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, and like, you know, some of my PhD students, you know, were joked that I had a, a Burma centric worldview, you know, naming that after Yaka Burma, you know, the, the mystical mm -hmm. cobbler of Gerlitz. But I found that this figure Burma whom on whom uh, Cyril Reagan wrote a significant monograph, he calls him the alpha point for the reintroduction of Gnosticism into modern culture, but you can start with Burma and then find all these lines radiating out. Um, Paul Tillich, who, you know, uh, maybe not as prominent as he was 20, 30, 40 years ago, but twice on the cover of Time magazine, often considered one of the second, maybe the second most influential theologian of the 20th century after Karl Barth, maybe Karl Rahner too. But Tillich said that he was, you know, that Burma was his intellectual grandfather through his, mm. his, through Schelling. His study he wrote two dissertations on Schelling, and Schelling was a Burmist. And then Carl Gustav Jung, the uh, you know the, the 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 psychologist and 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 mythological thinker, was a, was very much in in league with Burma. Um, William Blake, the poet. So they're poetic uh, expressions of Burmism. They're they're philosophical. They're they're psychological and they're theological. So he's one of the most important figures that. Uh, very few people actually even hear about in the course of a seminary degree and, and study. So I had not heard his name until I read your book. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, and he's, he's a difficult writer because he combines, uh, astrological and alchemical with biblical symbolism. And there's a kind of jumble of all these things, um, these things together. But Burma, Burma is, is sort of in the background. And now ironically, Burma was not a universalist. He, he seemed to mm. think there was this eternal contrast of light and darkness that remained forever. But what happened, as I argue, is that the, the Burmas ultimately were unhappy with that idea of this sort of eternal dichotomy. And instead, they saw the light as sort of overcoming the darkness. And so mm. the, the, almost all the Burmas followers became universalists. Mm. But the starting, the starting point is, is this crisis that happens within God. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is the... Uh, the, this is the not essential Gnostic idea that there is a crisis within the divine 
and some kind of a split that occurs. And then this leads to the creation of the material world. But then there's a return movement of coming back. And my argument is not that, you know, Origen was a Gnostic. I never claim that. But I say that there's an analogy between the sort of three tripartite unfolding of a pre-existent state, an earthly embodied state, and then a return again to origins. Um, so there's an analogy between that, what you find in the, the, the Gnostics like Valentinus and the later Gnostic thinkers, uh, so-called New Age thinkers of the 1980s and 90s that would say that, you know, our souls are sparks of the divine and they were... Mm -hmm. I use the analogy in the book of the helium balloon in your chest. And the moment you die, the balloon gets released. So it returns to sender. But of course, that would be, if you, if you believe that, that means that we're saved because kind of uh, according to our physical nature, what we are, it isn't a, there's not a choice involved and really doesn't depend so much on Jesus. Maybe Jesus is the one who came to teach us about the helium balloon in our chest to teach us that we all have this spark of the divine and, and that once that's released, it will return once again. So that that kind of pattern is the one that just is surprisingly pervasive. And at the risk of being controversial, I think some of the, you know, my my leading critic, which would be David Bentley Hart, some of the directions he's going in his newer theological work seem to me to confirm uh, the, the this connection between universalism and esotericism when he's talking calling his view vedantic christianity and calling himself a monist now that's well the the the, the real the real strength of the universe's argument is is really this this notion that if my inner innermost self soul spirit whatever you want to call it is one with god how can god forever remain unreconciled to himself must that spark of the divine within me, must it not return to God and be reunited? And in this sense, you know, Origen said the end is like the beginning, or I, you could use a little bit more elaborate language to say that the protology determines the eschatology, mm -hmm. that that which has come out from God must come back to God. And so there's a metaphysical uh, necessity of this return happening. It doesn't hang by the slender thread of the human decision one way or the other. It, it must have, it must happen. Mm -hmm. Another uh, analogy and, you could use right. this is a recycling operation. You know, we throw our, our aluminum cans and our plastic and our, our paper together. If we think if that's, if that like body, soul, and spirit, the body doesn't matter for the Gnostics, but if this, if the soul, the spirit is like the aluminum can, the aluminum cans get, they go back to the redemption center, they get recycled. And so they, you know, they, they're not, they, they, they go back to their place, uh, their proper place. Yeah. Uh, I've, yeah, lot, lots of strains of thought there. Uh, I was just rereading Wendell Berry's uh, The Unsettling of America. And in that he talks about how sort of modern industrial life assumes production, consumption, waste. Um, and then he says, but the natural way of things is sort of like, sort essentially production, consumption and return. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so there, yeah, they're like, and, and he's not arguing any kind of metaphysical necessity. Um, but I do think, you know, there's, um, there is sort of a, you know, you can, I, I understand like we have a garden and we have chickens. And so one of my favorite things about it is whatever we eat and, uh, don't consume, we return or the scraps we return or the chicken poo, it goes into the garden. And so we're able to have a little bit of that sort of cycle, but 
I don't know that that means it's ne- metaphysical necessity, but it just was one thing oh, that was. And what about the souls of those chickens? <laughs> I know, we won't go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, uh, yeah. I, I always, uh, whenever someone asks me about this, I, C.S. Lewis has something in The Problem of Pain about the saving, you will be saved, you and your household. And he says domesticated animals are part of the household. Um, and I don't know if I, again, if I, nece- I think that this is necessarily true or something. I just also like it because I love my dogs and my chickens. So, you know. Well, there was a, a Pew re- study done recently, and it was like 20 to 30% of American professing Christians in America believe that their pets will be yeah. with them in heaven. So, so yeah. you're not alone in that hope or expectation. <laughs> well, and actually, that uh, that teases a guest. Uh, there's some uh, a theologian, um, uh, Mick Hob- Mike Hobbits, uh, who's in uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, New Zealand. He's coming on the podcast next week to talk about a book he wrote on heaven. Um, we actually had him off to, on to talk about T. F. Torrance and theosis. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, so I really, I really like uh, talking with him. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. Um, well, and the other thing that you were just mentioning at the end, though, uh, was some was was about this sort of cleavage in God or this sort of uh, problem in God where and that's the beginning of this descent and then return. And and that kind of uh, one of the big ki- takeaways and even sort of um, I think kind of one of your your like reasons for being suspicious about a lot of these universalisms is you say that you return drama into the divine. And so it seems like this is one of your key uh, reasons for being, uh, you know, uh, arguing against universalism is because what it actually does, it it sort of um, uh, ruptures or disrupts or unsettles what uh, for Augustine to return to my favorite uh, is ultimately what makes God rest um, is because God is simple because God is unmoved because God is who God is without change or alteration um, and and that ultimately is comforting to him and so one of your fears is that in this sort of uni- in the theology that supports a universalism we return to or we have this idea of a, a rupture and a drama in divinity so could you sort of say more about why that's so problematic yeah well and what what universalism leads to that specifically yeah yeah um you know i i believe there's drama but i believe i i would side with with irenaeus i think irenaeus's great burden in the second century as he battled against gnosticism which was really at 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 that point you know by the in the 160s once i think kind of attempting to gobble up christianity and into what in fact was kind of a evolved form of late antique paganism of many different deities, many spirit beings, complicated mythological systems. And what was happening is the locus of salvation was shifting from the earthly to this otherworldly realm, mm-hmm. you know? So the, rather than preaching the gospel, Jesus was born of a virgin, lived the earth, you know, walked the dusty roads of Galilee, died on the cross, rose the tomb was empty he rose again instead let me tell you about the primal ogdoad you know the, the eight primal principles and then sophia longs to gaze into the into the depths of boothos which means depth you know into, into the depths and and conceives a child out of wed uh, herself and falls and the earth is crazy so it's this mythological system and so i i think that the instinct in irenaeus is correct that is it salvation happens down here not up there and this is essential to any kind of incarnational biblically based judaic rooted 
incarnational faith. If you walked up to the cross and ran your hands up and down, you would have gotten splinters in your hands. It's mm-hmm. and and we are saved in our material, physical conditions of life because salvation happened there. And that's why I get very nervous. I, I respect Hans Urs von Balthasar to take a prominent example of someone who I think there's a great deal to learn from. But when he starts talking about that before Jesus, that there's the urkenosis, this primal stripping of divinity, the father strips himself of all of his divinity in order to beget the son. There's a logic of paucity and the scarcity. And I, 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 rather than a canonic view, I would take a playrotic view. Mm. As I read the, the Nicene Creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, there is an overflow of the fullness of who of the Father. The, the, not that I can mentally comprehend what is exactly is meant by the begetting of the Son. I think I, I'm, I'm with Gregory of Nazianzus, and I think we need to preserve an apophatic reserve about that. But so far as we can understand it at all, it's not like two glasses. I have an empty glass and a full glass, and I empty one glass, and now one's half full, the other's half. The Father doesn't lose anything in begetting the Son, but the overflow of the life of the Father eternally, the, the Son depends on, the, and then the Holy Spirit is the, the second, you know, it's a further movement beyond that. So, um, so this idea of, of division within God, scarcity, um, conflict, the, the Burmists believe in conflict, actually in Kabbalistic thought, the emanations of the left and the emanations of the right, and they're at odds with one another. And that, the, that conflict spills over into the material world, and then the resolution of the conflict in God brings the reconciliation in the material world. So that's the logic played out, not with precisely the same terms, precisely the same uh, concepts, but again and again, there's an analogy to that, that that's happening. And I, it's been surprising to me the extent to which um, contemporary theologians have, 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 embraced, uh, have embraced this idea. Um, Bruce Marshall, mm-hmm. at, who I rely on fairly heavily and argue that he argument that he did on the absolute and the trinity, in um in one it's, it's cited in the literature in my book but he he has a whole argument about a kind of hegelianization mm-hmm. of 20th century theology in which uh god only becomes god through this othering god has to be othered in some sense and then reconciled back to god's own self for god to be god mm-hmm. and so it's a it's a kind of modalistic unfolding that's certain i mean uh, uh balthazar accused of uh, you know, Moltmann of rampant Hegelianism, to use this phrase. But I, but I think Balthazar has some of his own problems too. And and I think Bart's election doctrine he builds a kind of drama within God into that election doctrine. So it's occurring in a different, a, under a different um, rubric or a different doctrinal loci. But it's there as well. So what's the alternative to that? Well, Augustine talked about the. Tra- tranquilitas ordina, ordinus, right? Mm-hmm. The tranquility of order. That doesn't mean that God is static. God is a living God, symbolized by the burning bush, which is forever, in one sense, uh, well, Gregory of Nyssa, at this point, I, I like his phrase about the moving rest. Mm-hmm. It's paradoxical because the, the, the eternal, the burning bush is, is continually moving, but not consumed. So it has that element of rest of stasis together with element of, of movement. So God is a, is a living God, not a static, inert God, but, but God as Father, Son, and Spirit are in full agreement, full covenant, if you want to use the Calvinistic kind of language, covenant, agreement, 
with one another. The works of the Trinity, external works are undivided. They are works of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so we're not to set them against one another, as I think seems to be happening in the more Hegelianized uh, interpretations. Yeah, yeah. There's that. That's really it's really interesting. There's a lot in there. I you know, and I was hearing echoes of yeah of your last chapter um, in your discussion of Bard, and it also I had uh, I I mean I went to Princeton Seminary for my uh, MDiv, so I, a little so, you know I actually took all my classes with Hunsinger rather than McCormick, uh, mm-hmm. but McCormick has uh, a new book out on the humility of of Christ and what that mean or and what that means for his sort of interpretation of of uh, Christology, which I think sort of even leans more into this uh, you know. Uh, the election of God and God's being. Um, so I think he's, he, it seems, I haven't read it yet, uh, but from what I, from what little I've heard about, it seems like he's le- leading, uh, sort of leaning even more heavily into that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very com- complicated set of issues with regard to, yeah, the, the preexistent Christ and humanity is a humanity is G- if Jesus Christ is the electing God and, does that mean that uh, that God chooses His own being to become God? And yeah, all those those kinds of <laughs> yeah. That I'm not big. sure that I still understand it right now, but uh, it, yeah, it was one of those things that was it, going it, on while I was there. Certain, but certain analogies to the kind of the, the you know some scholars talk about the always already mm. kind of the always if if divine manhood is always already now that's. What you have in sophiological understanding, and also in Kabbalah, you have Adam Kadmon. Each human soul is sort of like a, a twig, as it were, broken off from uh, from the divine tree, and mm-hmm. so the, the the unity is already achieved. That to me is not the Irenaean or the Athanasian or the generally the early Christian understanding in which the unity of God and humanity is enacted. The word became flesh. That happens at a particular point. Before Mary conceived in her womb, a new that that reality that begins at that point was not had not yet been achieved. And this is I'm just arguing what Brunner said too, that he was concerned that that Bart's idea of the his denial of the logos asarkas, the unfleshed or non incarnate logos, ran the risk of denying the event character. Of, of salvation. Mm-hmm. And if you deny the event character, then it seems like we have some kind of perennial truth that, you know, that, uh, that is all true in all places and all times. And we're not actually any longer proclaiming a specific act that, you know, that, that, you know, who came, you know, for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, became incarnate for the Virgin Mary. The whole structure of the creed is a structure of it's a sequential Seek, you know, series of events in which God has acted. Now, I'm trying to sound like that, you know, God acts in history, but I, but there's an element of that too. There's, there's a, I, I'm not an anti, I'm not an anti-metaphysical type. I think that Christianity raises ultimate questions of metaphysics and we, and it, it requires us to think about being and, but, but I don't think we can, we can simply take the gospel and make it a, make it a metaphysic. Mm. And that, that I think is kind of at risk right now in some of the trends that are happening with, uh, with, with Hart and with Melbank and with some of the others. Yeah. So yeah, it seems like one of the refrains that was sort of interesting and, and you used this earlier, but yeah, is this, uh, is ultimately one question, uh, that seems to be being sort of eclipsed or overlooked is, is the goodness of creation. Um, you know, and some of this is just, you know, why, uh, you know, and, and, 
and you can sort of see why for Augustine, that was a hard thing to understand as a Platonist. Uh, like, so, you know, and I think Augustine has a lot more Platonism than people realize. Uh, but one of his big, uh, you know, one of his big reject, one reason why he rejected Platonism, uh, in at least in part, was the incarnation. Um, and the incarnation just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to him in terms of God becoming one with flesh, uh, if if that flesh is ultimately bad or, you know, something else like that. And so I think there's, you know, that kind of uh, wanting to honor the goodness of creation um, and the goodness of, of God becoming human uh, that was part of, of even uh, a way in which Augustine was rejecting some of of uh, his sort of the Platonism that he had embraced for a while. Um, if you, if you yeah. start with the Platonic metaphysic, where there are only two kinds of things that there are the things that are uncreated and eternal, and then there are created and temporal, temporal slash perishing. If those are the only two categories, and you say, what about the body? Well, the body clearly is temporal perishing. Mm -hmm. And if you follow the logic of that out, you end up with a spiritual body that has almost no relationship to the material world, which of course is, we, you know, Origen's treatise on the resurrection perished. We don't have a copy of that, but some people think that some of that we have enough in the very, the periarchon, the on first principles to see where he's going. But then, so then what about, um, what about this, the, the human self, the innermost self spirit or rational nature? Well, you might say it had to, if it's, in that category of of you know of eternal, it had to pre-exist the body and and exist after the body, and um, it will never perish. There, there's a kind of logic of universalism that comes out of a strict um, strict uh, Platonic view. And in my little little snippet of argument regarding Augustine, I draw not so much on the later books of the City of God that got all the attention about the nature of hell and punishment and so on and uh, but I, but I look at the earlier critique of Platonism, and essentially, uh, Augustine introduces a new category, that which is created in, in time, but will never come to an end. So if you're thinking in terms of geometry, there's like a point, and then, then there's like the line, right, that goes in both directions. This, this would be a ray. You put a point on the plane, and then you draw the little arrow coming out from that. And he said the beatitude of the saints begins at a point in time, and then will never come again. So he's pushing back against the Platonic metaphysics at that point. He's he's uh, he's adapting, altering it to to subserve his reading of scripture. And the last thing that I you know is just something I puzzle over every now and then. Um, you know, is why people who are who embrace a, a form of universalism, uh, why do they respond to people who, you know, hold to uh, the truth, like the teaching of hell? Why is it so like, like so angry? <laughs> like, it, you know, it always ends. It seems like it always ends in like people getting very, very upset and, you know, sort of uh, like, I mean, you know, obviously David Milley Hart would be in this category. And, he, you know, one thing you emailed me was his response to Edward Fesser. Uh, and that's still yeah. ongoing. Um, but it's, it gets, it gets very like, you know, uh, I don't know, overheated uh, to put it lightly in the rhetoric. And I've never quite, I mean, other than the fact that that's kind of how David Bentley Hart writes, 
Um, although he, he, uh, we had him on the podcast and he's very nice, uh, when he talks to people, you know, but, but when he, like, sometimes when he puts his pen to paper, uh, to go, you know, go after his interlocutors and, and there are others, it just, it gets so fierce. And I, I'm like, I've never understood why, I mean, if we all end up here one way or another, why do we have to be so angry about it now? <laughs> well, you're, you're echoing the point that I made in my, you know, my online review of Hart's book when the, the essay I wrote for Gospel Coalition, that, that all shall be saved, that particular book. And, and I, I found a lack of congruence between the thesis of the book and the, the tenor of the book, the, the emotional tenor. Because if even the misguided Calvinists and the narrow-minded Thomas are all going to be sharing in eternal salvation along with atheists, Buddhists, agnostics, Muslims, you name it, um, small, you know, African traditional religionists, everyone is included. Why wouldn't that give you a, if I, if I really believe that, wouldn't that free me from having to feel that I was at odds with anyone? It's like, okay, you know, if I were the universist and Chad, you were arguing against me, I'd say, I could smile and say, Chad, yeah. You know, you're going to understand eventually. Everyone yeah. will understand. Have a nice day. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I, I so I don't, I, I don't quite get that. And I, I'll, I'll try not to draw any psychological yeah. conclusions. I don't <laughs> entitled to draw about a, about an author who's who's angry while they're yeah. arguing. Yes, yes, you will be saved. You know, you made me mad by denying that, and everyone's going to be saved. And why can't you accept that? Okay, that's like. I, but I, I, in my review, I do question whether he's completely convinced of his own position. Because again, I just don't see the, 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 the attitude of, 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 of wouldn't that be joyful? I, I would feel joyful. And 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 yeah, if if it were somehow conceivable, yeah. And 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 you know, my faith based on scripture and Christian tradition and also direct experience of the world led me to the conclusion that everyone is turning, will turn finally to Christ and everyone will be included in, in the, in the community. That would be a positive thing. Yeah. Well, and so I, I'm arguing against the schadenfreude argument that David put in his New York times editorial that basically Christians mm -hmm. believe in hell because they, they, there's a part of them that enjoys the thought of people suffering. And that mm -hmm. of course it's, it's an astounding claim to make because the people who've held the traditional view of, I mean, we're talking about billions of people through the last 2000 years. So you're like, like you'd have to be claiming that you knew what was in there, what was unexpressed in the minds of all these different people and all these different cultures and places around the world. That's a pretty astounding uh, assertion. Indeed. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking an hour out of your time, Dr. McClymond. Uh, this has been uh, an enlightening conversation an enlightening read. Um, and so, uh, like I said, just want to thank you so much for, uh, coming on and also, uh, working with me through the, you know, technical difficulties and, uh, personal difficulties and, uh, yeah. So and thank you very I, much. If I can put in a, a 20 second plug, I have a new sure. book out next year with okay. Paul Press. It's a general introduction to Christian spirituality called Martyrs, Monks, and Mystics. Mm. And so it's not... It's not a controversial book. Uh, well, I don't. I don't think it's more of a really an irenic book, uh, an ecumenical book that synthesizes Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, and Pentecostal spiritualities. And I have a I have an appreciate appreciate appreciation of Christian mysticism that's built in there. 
Yeah. So uh, I, I hope that people might be might look for that about it within a year from now. And is that going to be two volumes and uh, oh, <laughs> about maybe about three to four hundred pages? And so right. I designed it to be a first book. All right. Well, I will look forward to that, and uh, maybe when you get it close to finished, I, we can have you on and talk about that. That that would be great. Thank you.